From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When it comes to racial justice and gender equality, there can be meaningful change or empty gestures, what DU law professor Nancy Leong calls identity capitalism. An example might be if somebody is trying to prove that they're not racist, they immediately talk about their many, many black friends. Individuals do this, so do corporations. How the powerful exploit diversity to maintain inequality. Then, Denver's police chief told us that officers had trouble attaching their body cams during last summer's protests. Denverite's Anna Campbell says that's only part of the picture. And later, a Pueblo cemetery unravels a century-old mystery. And we're satisfied. We have peace about it. And we want these people to have peace. Thank you for your recent gift during Colorado Public Radio's Fund Drive. Did you know you may be able to make it an even bigger gift at no added cost to you? Thousands of businesses match donations made by their employees. Taking the time to fill out your company's matching gift form adds financial support for the news and music you enjoy. Double your gift to CPR with an employer matching gift. Information is on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. After the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed, a lot of companies put out statements about diversity. They might have hired executives to focus on workplace culture. I should say, for transparency's sake, CPR did that. But law professor Nancy Leong of the University of Denver is much more interested in a company's walk than its talk, or a government's, for that matter. Her new book is Identity Capitalists, The Powerful Insiders Who Exploit Diversity to Maintain Inequality. And Professor, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. You see examples all over of identity capitalism in corporations, uh, baked into U.S. law and in your own personal circles. First off, give us a quick definition of identity capitalism. An identity capitalist is somebody who uses someone else's identity to benefit himself. So identity capitalism is a term that I use to describe the way that process uh, takes place throughout society. And you have seen this personally. You start with an example of a wedding you were invited to. I think it illustrates this point well. What's this story? Well, a few years ago now, I was invited to attend the wedding of one of my friends from college who I'd kind of fallen out of touch with over the years to the point that I was surprised to get this invitation. But I like weddings. I mean, who doesn't? And so I accepted the invitation. I went. Um, It was a beautiful ceremony. Everybody was having a good time, talking, dancing. And at one point during the reception, my friend came over to me and gave me a hug. She said she was really excited that I was there. And then she said, after all, if you weren't here, everybody who's here would be white. And I don't know that it showed on my face how taken aback I was by this, but I was. I realized that there was a reason for me being at the wedding, which didn't only have to do with how much my friend liked me. And I think this is really how I got started thinking about the idea of identity capitalism, just 
the idea that there was a benefit that my friend was getting out of me being at her wedding that, again, wasn't just about our friendship. How do you identify, if I may ask, racially? I identify as Asian American. Okay. And so what you're saying is that your friend was capitalizing on your identity, on your racial identity, to get something out of it. What do you think that she was getting out of it? I think she was getting several things. I think that we have reached a point in American society where people feel a little bit self-conscious or many people feel a little bit self-conscious if their social circle is only white. And so I think that she was getting the benefit of not having to think about that, right? Like not having to think about why her social circle was only white. Um, So there were some benefits just to her internally. I also think that there was a more performative benefit, that she uh, was able at this wedding to um, kind of, you know, point to me being in attendance as an example of how her friend circle was was diverse. Uh, Not that she would do this explicitly, although she did to me, But um, just in terms of the photos or um, maybe in terms of what she imagined her friends would think looking around, that was a benefit, I think, that she got out of this as well. And you write about this as a market. So there is a market in anti-racism or in not seeming racist. And I think that's an important thing to understand when we talk about identity identity capitalism. Explain that. Yeah, I think that's right. And the reason I think the... Uh, metaphor of the market is useful is because it helps us think about why um, there is this demand, to use another market concept, why there is this demand for certain types of identity, whether it is racial identity, whether it is um, uh, gender identity. Identities that have been historically underrepresented in one way or another are in demand right now to greater and lesser degrees in certain circumstances. And I think that's why, for example, we see things like companies paying a lot of attention to the photos on their websites or, uh, you know, who uh, in some instances gets promoted to particular um, public-facing positions. You write a lot about photos and you write about them in the context of college brochures as well. Why? So... When I was first doing research for this project, um, I came across a really interesting example that involved a situation where the University of Wisconsin actually photoshopped a black student onto the cover of its um, admissions brochure. And uh, it's a a group of white students at a football game, and then they just photoshopped this um, black student into the group. Well, the black student found out about it when he saw the brochure. Like, they didn't ask his permission. Um, They didn't even bother to stage a photo. They just turned to Photoshop. And you find examples that are on brochures, but you also find much deeper examples ingrained in the legal system. You are a law professor, and we're going to talk about those in the latter part of the interview. But uh, how did that turn out, that story of the brochure at the university? So the student filed a lawsuit against the university for essentially using his likeness without his permission. I won't get too technical here. Uh Um, But I think that the remedy that he sought was really interesting. So he wasn't trying to get anything for himself. He was seeking money from the university that the university would spend on programs to create authentic diversity. So programs to, um, for example, provide scholarships for underrepresented uh, groups of students, things like that. 
And authentic is a word that you really put forth as a solution to the sort of empty gestures of maybe inviting someone to a wedding with yeah. mixed, you know, uh, motivations or photoshopping someone on to a brochure. And, and that is to check for authenticity when you're about to take a step that may appear to be diverse. Would you just share a few words about authenticity? And I'm glad we're getting to solutions so quickly, by the way, and not just <laughs> outlining the problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do spend a lot of time in the book um, kind of complaining about the problem and describing the problem. But I think that's important because I want people uh, to think about how pervasive this is. But in terms of authenticity, you know, I think that the intent or the purpose with which people take particular actions to increase diversity um, I think that intent or purpose is really important because in the long run, it's going to contribute to how effective those measures are. So if that is, somebody... if they're performative, they're also shallow. They may not be systemic changes. Yeah. I mean, if somebody's purpose is really just trying to get the credit for having, you know, for example, a diverse group of employees, then, you know, for their purposes, uh, just you know, uh, like a few photos on the website may get them, you know, 95% or 97% of the way that they, the, the way that they want to go. Um, whereas if somebody is trying to do something w with the intent of creating more authentic diversity, then of course the photo won't be enough. Like they'll actually want to change the workplace culture. They may want to change their hiring practices or their retention practices. Um, it would involve much more sweeping changes. And that's what I meant when I introduced you saying you're much more interested in a company's or a government's walk than its talk. Uh, you cite the work of the Afro-Puerto Rican sociologist at Duke, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who wrote a book called Racism Without Racists. Uh, what did he find about white people's relationships, friendships with people of color? Yeah. So Eduardo Bonilla Silva, I mean, his work is is wonderful. And I recommend the, the book um, really to everybody. Um, so one of the things that he found is that white people consistently overestimate the number of white friends that they have. I'm sorry, the, the number of non-white friends that they have and the closeness of their non-white friends. Um, and they do that both when they're describing their friend groups to other people and when, um, you know, uh, they're thinking about their friend groups, you know, to themselves. Like this is almost a self-delusion in some ways. And I suppose to some extent this connects back to the wedding. Let me just ask one thing about the wedding. Um, the, the motivation from your friend was not to have an all-white friend group. Is that a good motivation fundamentally with kind of a poor execution and how she handled it? Like, just reflect a little bit more on that. I know you've done a lot of thinking about it. I do think that that is a good motivation. Um, there uh, has been some research recently, and of course this is going to vary from one part of the country to another, hmm. but there's some research that shows that 70% of white people have no non-white friends. And I think that that really speaks to a lot of things about the history of the country, things like residential segregation and school segregation, right? Um, just the fact that many white people don't encounter people who aren't white in their day-to-day -day lives. And of course, that can lead organically to all white friend groups if people don't take proactive measures to get out of their 
um, circumstances. You know, having said that, I think that there are um, the kind of proactive measures that are things like, um, you know, inviting the one Asian American woman who you called a friend at one point to your wedding. Um, you know, I think that's maybe a little bit less productive, um, certainly less authentic. And then there are things like perhaps changing. Uh, you know, the neighborhoods where you spend time or mm. even the neighborhood where you live, right? Changing um, kind of the demographics of the people that you come into contact with day to day. Which is a more authentic change than yeah, the I mere think that's invitation. Right. And you write that identity capitalists have been a part of American history from the beginning. You see it in slavery, in women's suffrage, in segregation. What are a few uh, examples of early identity, identity capitalism? Well, I think it's really interesting to look at what was going on around the time of the women's suffrage movement. And what we saw at that point in time was that men who opposed granting women the right to vote, of course, they made arguments from their own perspectives, but even more so because there were anti-suffragist women, um, quite a large group of them, actually. Uh, what what these men would do uh, just as frequently is elevate the writings of uh, women who considered themselves anti-suffragists. And they would say, well, um, let a woman tell it. This is what women really want. And so I think of that as identity capitalism because, of course, um, it's an example of men using women, right? Like using the identity of the women who are saying these things to lend credibility to them and uh, broadcast or lend more gravitas to uh, the arguments that these men themselves want to be making. Again, capitalizing on someone else's identity to drive home your point, which maintains inequality. How about some more recent examples? Why don't we start uh, with this voice. Yes, women face so much more scrutiny. Um, you know, it, in a lot of sense, it was a lot about looks, you know, the physicality involved in serving in public office, which was ridiculous to me. Um, whereas men, even today, um, aren't under that kind of microscope. And also, um, I think women mothers um, are kind of scrutinized also, much more so than a male candidate um, when it comes to family and children. And I was asked so often, how are you going to do this with children? So maybe you recognize that voice, former governor and vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin. Professor, what does she represent to you through this lens of identity capitalism? So I think that John McCain and uh, the Republican Party more generally engaged in identity capitalism when it came to Sarah Palin. So one thing that they were trying to do with the selection of um, former Governor Palin was to capitalize on a sentiment among many women in 2008 who were disappointed that Hillary Clinton wasn't the Democratic Party's nominee. And so the idea was that perhaps uh, as a political strategy, they could peel off some of these disaffected Democratic voters who are excited about having a woman in the highest office by naming Sarah Palin to the ticket. Well, now, for Sarah Palin and for her supporters, that was probably a very important choice and a meaningful one. I think it was. And I do not at all mean to imply um, that Sarah Palin 
resisted this or that she wasn't aware of it. I think that she was aware of it and uh, that she participated in it and even encouraged it and amplified it. Do you think that it was identity capitalism as well when President Biden chose Kamala Harris, for instance, as his veep? Oh, I think that it was. And, you know, I think that this is one of the interesting and difficult dynamics that I try to pull apart in the book is that there is a gray area. You know, I mean, I think that there are some examples of identity capitalism that we can think of as just um, uh, purely cynical or purely self-interested. And then sometimes there are situations where good strategy and... um, you know, other uh, perhaps more altruistic goals align. Um, But drawing a line between those two things is difficult. Um, I would not I would not make the claim that either the selection of Sarah Palin or the selection of Kamala Harris is entirely um, positive in its consequences or entirely negative in its consequences. But it can be a mixed bag for sure. Absolutely. Okay, here's another piece of tape, a a fab piece of tape. What are you afraid they're going to see? My face. You know, What's everything. Wrong with your face? I, you know, my the wrinkles, you know, my beard, all that. You mm. know, just I'm not confident with it. Can I take your cap off? Yes. You're a handsome man. And I feel like you're hiding away with all of this stuff. Okay, so that's the British fashion designer Tan France there from TV's Queer Eye. What do the Fab Five demonstrate to you? So I think the Fab Five, um, and Queer Eye more generally, provide a really interesting example of the intersection between identity capitalism, which we've been talking about, and another concept I discuss in the book called identity entrepreneurship. So clearly, there's some identity capitalism going on with respect to the Fab Five, the producers of the the the, the show, um, are getting a lot of benefit from the way that these... Um, five men perform queer identity and, uh, you know, the way that they play with, um, you know, some of the stereotypes even associated with with queer identity. But and, there's entrepreneurialism going on. Yeah, on, there's on entrepreneurialism going yeah. on as well. Um, and so I think that uh, the, the, the way I think about identity entrepreneurialism is when members of um, particular groups use their own identities to benefit themselves. They're being entrepreneurs. And so I would say that every single one of the Fab Five is an entrepreneur. And I I don't think that that's a bad thing. You say this as well about Rihanna. Yes, uh, I think Rihanna is also a good example. Um, there's ways that she leverages both her, uh, you know, her racial identity and her identity as a woman and um, uses those things to benefit herself. Identity capitalism is not just about pop culture and corporate America. You do find it baked into the legal system and the law itself judges, juries, labor and employment law in particular. Uh, Again, you're a law professor at DU. What examples stand out to you of how this touches the legal system? Well, so I like to start by talking about judges themselves and what they do, because, of course, that's going to affect the whole legal system. Um, I think a few interesting examples that I can give coming out of um, uh, uh, judicial opinions are, so I notice this interesting trend that judges like to quote Martin Luther King Jr. when they are about to rule against 
a plaintiff who is a person of color and particularly a black plaintiff. Um, and it's almost as though they're using Martin Luther King and his legacy and his words, sometimes taken out of context, to shield themselves and to, um, uh, you know, shield the opinion from accusations of racism. You find as well this operating in juries and in certain kinds of rulings. Um, so the identity of jurors um, or the identity of accusers or uh, the, of the accused all playing into perceptions of whether something is just. Share a few words about that. So the jury situation is really interesting. Um, again, without going too deep into uh, the law here, um, there's case law that says that when a when a, a, a prosecutor is selecting a jury in a criminal trial, um, they can't strike people from the jury on the basis of race. So um, what prosecutors will sometimes do, um, and prosecutors in some instances have even acknowledged this in writing, is uh, is uh, allow onto the jury um, a person of color so that they can strike a more objectionable person of color later on. And courts in some ways even encourage this by allowing the instance of the prosecutor not striking a person of color um, to, um, if you will, uh, shield or um, allow the later instance of the prosecutor striking a member of the jury. And that's a version of identity capitalism. You, you are capitalizing in some ways on that person's identity. Yeah. So again, the prosecutor is um, using the identity of the person that they allowed onto the jury to benefit themselves um, to be able to strike another person who they don't want on the jury. There's uh, some strategy there that's very interesting in the capitalism. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I think that uh, what it may go to is the idea that um, some members of a racial group may be more acceptable than other members. Um, and I think that this is one of the problems with identity capitalism is that it gives the identity capitalists the ability to uh, decide and perhaps provide some benefits to members of disadvantaged groups who they believe are more acceptable. You have mentioned that authenticity is very important to you, engaging whether something is indeed authentic or if it's just performative. Honesty as well. Apologies. You, you place some emphasis on that. In just the last few seconds, why apologies? I think, I think apologies are important because when people have done something that is, let's say, racially problem problematic, there's a tendency to get defensive. Um, but instead, just apologizing or taking responsibility for the action can create an opportunity for conversation, right? Like real, meaningful, authentic conversation instead of closing the door to it. Thank you so much, Professor. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Nancy Leong, law professor at the University of Denver. Her new book is Identity Capitalists, the Powerful Insiders Who Exploit Diversity to Maintain Inequality. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour, a follow-up to our conversation with Denver's police chief about body camps. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. In August 2019, a Colorado Springs man watched police officers shoot his 19-year-old cousin. When they started shooting, I kind of like froze. 
From that moment on, he had one goal, to change policing. Episode 2 of Systemic, from Colorado Public Radio, available free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There are still hundreds of Coloradans in the hospital right now with COVID-19. And as CPR health reporter John Daly explains, nearly all of them have one thing in common. They are unvaccinated. He's on two feeds. He's on DVT prophylaxis, GI prophylaxis. At Platte Valley Medical Center in Brighton, intensive care nurse Jillian Blaha and Dr. Steve Brizendine review patient charts. We're going to prone as well. We'll prone later today. We'll keep him prone for 16 hours. Brizendine, the chief of the medical staff, says he, his colleagues, and the patients they treat have been through a lot since the start of the pandemic. We've had uh, quite a wild ride for the last 14, 15 months. There's no doubt about it. We've had a lot of success stories. We've had a lot of sad stories as well, but but we have a much better grasp and a much better hold on, on how to care for these patients. Brizendine says at first his team was dealing with how to treat a brand new disease. They faced a flood of patients, especially during the winter surge. They grappled with stress and exhaustion. But one thing hasn't changed. The COVID-19 patients keep on coming. A lot of the patients that we're seeing now are young and, uh, you know, 30s to 40s and, and can be critically ill. Cases, infection rates and deaths are down as more people get vaccinated. COVID-19 hospitalizations are falling too, but still high, around 500 patients. Dr. J.P. Vallon, chief clinical officer at SEL Health, says one other thing stands out in nearly 900 patients they've seen since February. We've taken a deep look at this. 95% of the patients who have been hospitalized since February are unvaccinated. The Washington Post analyzed state-by-state data. It found the virus is still spreading as fast among the unvaccinated as it did during last winter's surge. Colorado is one of a few states with case spikes among the unvaccinated at rates double the national figure. But Valen says the flip side of that is that vaccines are doing their job for those willing to be injected. The good news is that those handful of patients that we have admitted to the hospital that have been vaccinated, we've seen no deaths in that group, and actually virtually all of them have been discharged. Another noteworthy trend, Hispanic and Black residents continue to be hospitalized at disproportionately high rates. Maggie Gomez, who chairs the state's Health Equity Commission, says underlying obstacles often prevent access or delay people getting health care, including vaccinations. Transportation or geography or immigration status or language barriers or all of those, you know, social determinants of health, right? And she says, despite efforts from the state health department, community groups, churches and others, vaccination rates are still lagging behind in communities of color, especially with Hispanics. I really appreciate the commercials and they're doing stuff in Spanish and folks that, you know, are not just white. And that's all really good and super important. It's not really reaching the folks that it needs to reach, though. Other data clearly show the impact of the vaccines. The state health department plotted both COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations with vaccinations. Dr. Rachel Herlihy, the state epidemiologist, says counties and communities with the highest vaccination rates are seeing the lowest spread of the virus and vice versa. Those groups where the vaccination rates are lower are going to be the groups where the the risk of transmission continues to be high. That means Colorado will likely see a very spotty, uneven pandemic in the months ahead, 
where trouble keeps popping up among the unvaccinated. There are always going to be these pockets of undervaccination, and those are going to continue to be the communities that are most at risk, whether that's a county, a town, a school, a playgroup, whatever it might be. There's definitely a strong correlation, especially with just the number of infected individuals. You know, that's why right now my push is is on getting people vaccinated. That's Jeff Coor. He directs the health department in Mesa County, which is seeing more worrisome virus trends, like the arrival of more transmissible variants, including one first found in India. Vaccines so far appear effective against variants, but Coor says a girl older than 10 who recently died tested positive for the variant from India. We've had quite an increase. I feel like we're stable right now, but I can't say that we're limiting spread. We're seeing a lot more cases in children. Like the state, we have a lot more of variant strains. Meantime, most deaths and hospitalizations in Mesa County, like the girl who died, are among the unvaccinated. Many are adults who have been able to get their shots for weeks, Some are waiting, some have questions, and Kerr says some still have doubts about the severity of COVID-19. So it's sort of my chances of getting a severe case is low. There's a lot of misinformation about the vaccine. I would rather take the chance of getting a mild case of COVID than getting a complication from the vaccine. Back at Platte Valley Medical Center, nurse Diana Reed says her husband was hospitalized and on a ventilator for two weeks with COVID-19 last year. She says, unfortunately, many folks won't take it seriously unless it hits close to home. Seeing my husband go through that, you can talk about going through those experiences, but unfortunately, a lot of people, unless they go through it, they just don't see or feel or realize how serious it really is. Dr. Steve Brizendine says in some cases, unvaccinated patients are convinced they don't have COVID-19. One yelled at, chastised, and belittled staff who are wearing masks and doing their best to care for him, saying there's no such thing as COVID, Brizendine says, only to have a deathbed conversion. All of us here working on the front lines, taking care of these patients that are critically ill, saving them, uh, some of them dying, and for people to feel that this is not a true virus, this is not a true pandemic, was it, 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 it was highly disappointing, you know, highly disappointing and discouraging. Brizendine says he anticipates the mental health impact of treating pandemic patients will last years, but he says providers are able to process their experience through a support group. And after being through the coronavirus battles together, an unspoken link has formed. It just builds that bond, and then it's a better team. It's a teamwork feeling that you can take care of that next patient even better. It's been a long haul, and frontline providers are ready for the crisis to be over, Brizendine says, something only widespread vaccination can bring. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Denver's police chief, Paul Pazin, was on the show last week. The city had just trumpeted its use of body-worn cameras in a press release. But Denver's independent monitor found a dearth of footage from last summer's protests. So I asked Chief Pazin to explain the disconnect. Well, 
thank you so much for bringing this up. And uh, we did identify the gap. The gap wasn't uh, the fact that officers were not uh, turning on the cameras. It was the fact that the cameras could not be attached to the protective gear that officers uh, needed to wear during these uh, mostly peaceful protests. But the few protests that 81 officers were injured in, that protective gear is about an inch thick. And those body-worn cameras are held together to the uniform with a magnet. So we have since rectified this situation by purchasing additional pieces of equipment that can allow for this attachment to the protective gear. Okay, our colleagues at Denverite have obtained internal DPD documents, which show that what you just heard is true. It is not, however, the full picture. Editor Anna Campbell is here to explain. Hi, Anna. Hi, Ryan. So this magnet attachment claim is uh, true? You know, it is to an extent. The um, officers told the Independent Monitor, which investigates police in Denver, that they had a hard time attaching body cameras to their gear. We also saw that in sworn statements Denverite got through a public records request. But what Chief Pazin didn't address are the systemic issues that, uh, you know, caused a lot of the problems with body cameras. Say more about those. Sure. So back in December, the Independent Monitor came out with a report that detailed, quote unquote, significant gaps in DPD's policy that led to failings in how the department handled the protests. So, for example, Despite the use of body cams being, you know, a universally known best practice during crowd control situations, uh, DPD didn't give its officers any guidance on how to use them in those situations. Mm. So that led, according to this report, uh, to a lot of officers not recording on their body cams during the protests. Also, just want to mention certain high ranking officers weren't required to wear body cameras. And according to the monitor on one day alone last summer, June 1st, those ranking officers made up 28 percent of the force that responded to protests. So Faison also said it wasn't that officers were not turning on their cameras. It sounds like that doesn't hold water. It does not. Yeah, but it's hard to say exactly how many officers failed to do that. So the monitor's report Uh, details a lot of issues the office had in gathering evidence from DPD. So, for example, the department didn't give the monitor access to the kind of repository that holds all of DPD's body cam footage. It just released some of those videos piecemeal. DPD also couldn't say how many officers actually responded to a lot of the protests. Uh, So all of that really hindered oversight. Uh, But to to go back to what Chief Pazin said, according to the report, Yeah, some officers just didn't turn on their cameras. What else do these internal documents reveal about body-worn cameras? Broadly speaking, they show a real need for the department to really specify when and how they should be used. And here's the thing. There's a benefit to officers, too, because body cam footage can exonerate one who's facing, you know, some sort of allegation. So they really benefit all parties. Uh, Besides the magnet thing, have Denver police made changes based on the independent monitor's report. They have, yeah. So afterwards, DPD did update its body cam policy to require that all command staff wear them during protests. Uh, They're also requiring all body cams to be activated uh, during future confrontations with protesters. 
Anna, this feels like a good opportunity to talk about body cameras statewide. Uh, This was an important part of the police accountability law the legislature passed last year. Right. So the legislation mandates that by summer of 2023, all law enforcement agencies must issue cameras to officers. Uh, There are a few carve outs. It doesn't touch civilian staff the governor's state patrol detail, or undercover cops. Um, Otherwise, it clearly states that officers should use their cameras when responding to a call or during any interaction with the public, quote-unquote, in which a law is being enforced. Anna, thank you so much for this context. I appreciate it. Sure, thank you. Anna Campbell is editor of Denverite, which is part of CPR News. We talked about body cam policy in Denver and statewide. Cemeteries are like history books you can walk through. But at a cemetery in Pueblo, there was an empty page, an area where something just felt a bit off. Well, they've managed to fill in the blanks with some detective work and a little technology, and it has brought more of Pueblo's sometimes painful past to light. Lucille Corsentino is president of the foundation that helps support Roselawn Cemetery. Hi, Lucille. Good morning, Ryan. This mystery centers on a place called Beach Lane. Describe that for me. What does it look like? How does it fit into the scenery? Well, it's about 150 feet long, about eight foot wide. And it's a road that was abandoned in what we call our historical section, which was probably the pauper section. The the pauper section, in other words, where poor people would be buried. Well, it was referred to as the place for the least of our brothers. There was a lot of uh, prejudice in Pueblo back in the early, early years. And uh, a lot of immigrants were buried there. Mm. And those graves were free. And so consequently, the immigrants were almost forced because of their socioeconomic conditions to take advantage, so to speak, of the free graves. Well, you knew, you had a, a suspicion at least, Lucille, that there was more to the story of Beach Lane. When did you have an inkling that something was different about that spot? There was a gentleman by the name of Kevin McCarthy, and he was our executive director here at Roselawn. Kevin has passed away. He passed away in 2019, and he and I have worked together. He always told me the story that was passed down through his family. Hmm. His great-grandfather was T.G. McCarthy, and he was the coroner here in Pueblo at the time of the flood in 1921. This is the devastating flood that hit Pueblo. In 1921. The story that was handed down to the McCarthy family was that there was 250 to 300 bodies that were unidentified the day after the flood on June 4th. They didn't know what If nobody could claim the bodies, what were they going to do with them? They had no other alternative other than to take them to the cemetery. And the story that was handed down is, we dug trenches and put them in trenches. Also, in this particular area, there was a huge tree that was planted that just grew in the middle of this vast area. And I would sit there and look at that tree and say to myself, Why did this tree just come up out of nowhere here? Hmm. In this otherwise desolate spot. Yes. So the story was that there might be hundreds of unidentifiable bodies beneath Beach Lane, 
we're talking beyond those known to be buried in the so-called pauper's lots. And you had a hunch that that tree might have been some sort of sign. We'll talk about that. But to confirm all this, you managed to look underground without actually digging. Yes. When we did the ground penetration radar work, the GPR shows density under beach lane at approximately three foot levels, but there's no recorded burials. Oh. But we burials to all the other lots. So when you would put this on a map, it was very evident that this beach lane had been abandoned, but there was bodies under beach lane and it didn't make sense. You knew of many burials, obviously, thousands of them, of poorer folks from Pueblo's past. But it seemed, in a way, that there was almost a mass grave under Beach Lane? Yes, that's the determination we've made. Because we can tie the names and the numbers to the lots, but you can't do it on Beach Lane. There is no recorded burials. So can you say concretely that these are folks who had to be mass buried because of a flood. Can you say that that's the history for sure? Yes, that's the conclusion we've come to. Because it stands to reason, if the other graves surrounding this are six foot depth, and this is three foot, there has to be a reason. Mm -hmm. The GPR work indicates that they were buried in trenches. So putting the pieces together like a puzzle, you can begin to figure this out. Then, like I said, about 30 feet to the south of Beach Lane is this huge tree, which we believed was one tree. When we had the Denver conologist, Dr. Peter Brown, come down from Fort Collins and he did the cold tree drawings. A a dendrochronologist, in other words, someone who figures out time based on tree rings. Yes, but he was also able to tell us that it wasn't one tree, it was three separate trees that were planted, and they were planted in a triangular shape and grew into one tree. Oh, so this was maybe like a memorial, a marker. So you just kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together, Ryan, and you begin to figure it out. Okay, if there are three trees, Lucille, then that presumably means three events memorialized. Obviously, the flood is one of them. What would the other two be? Well, the 1904 Eden train wreck and then the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Okay, so the the flu pandemic, you believe, is also connected to the mass grave. Tell me about that train wreck. That's not necessarily connected to a mass burial, but it's an important moment. Yes, it definitely is, Ryan. Uh, In 1904, there was uh, approximately 125 people. They were on board and going uh, from Colorado Springs through Pueblo, headed to the St. Louis World's Fair. Hmm. Unbeknown to them, they they encountered a bridge that had been washed out six and a half miles north of Pueblo. And the train, the engine just went across and fell into this huge arroyo. It was 35 feet deep. And some of the passengers were never recovered. Their bodies are still in that silt and were buried. And we were going to commemorate those people as well. So it sounds to me like these trees, two of them would represent those uh, buried in a mass grave below from the flu pandemic, from the flood. And then someone said, gosh, we, we should probably plant a third tree for those who died in the train wreck, huh? 
Yes, that's what we believe, yes. You know, hearing you speak, it just makes me think how hard scrabble life can be for some folks and has been in history and in a way how good i have it do do you feel that oh absolutely absolutely and you know you hear about the 1921 flood as a kid growing up and you hear various stories from your family but when you really dig into it and you start researching you can't even get your head around what those people experienced it it was just devastating what amazing history. What do, what do you feel when you walk around Beach Lane? Well, it's just, um, it's a feeling of peace because at last these people will be remembered. I, I want to say that students from the Colorado School of Mines helped you with some of this ground-penetrating work. And... Is there any thought of somehow bringing the bodies up and reburying them, or is it about letting them lie? No, sir. No, we will not do that. We want them to rest. We have enough information, Ryan, that we're satisfied. The research and the stories that we've been told, it all fits together, and we're satisfied. We uh, we have peace about it, and we want these people to have peace. And so... There will be a marker, correct, that that tells this history? Yes, we are going to have a program on June 4th. It's actually a memorial service at 10 o'clock in the morning. We're going to commemorate their lives in a very uh, loving and tender way. Here at Roselawn, we use the words of Benjamin Franklin, uh, one of our forefathers. He spoke these words over 200 years ago that one can tell the morals of a culture by the way they treat their dead. Mm -hmm. And we treat our dead with respect, and we move forward. Describe, then, what will mark this site. Uh, She's an angel. She stands about, oh, three and a half foot, and she has huge wings, and she's leaning over a gray monument And I would say that monument is about four foot in width, and it will have a lovely inscription to commemorate the three Pueblo tragedies. Lucille, thank you so much for sharing these discoveries with us. Thank you, Ryan. Lucille Corsentino leads the foundation behind Pueblo's Roselawn Cemetery. They'll commemorate the mass grave Friday and recognize the centennial of that catastrophic flood. Finally today, there's mutual admiration between two big names in Colorado music. The Lumineers and Gregory Allen Isakoff covered each other's songs for an upcoming compilation. It's from Dual Tone Records, marking the label's 20th anniversary. Dual Tone, based in Nashville, has helped launch the careers of many Americana artists. Singer-songwriter Gregory Allen Isakoff of Boulder County chose to do Salt and the Sea by Denver superstars The Lumineers. We'll first play a bit of the original and then let the cover take over. All that you suffer, all the disease, you couldn't hide it, hide it from me. All alone, scared in your room, would you swear there's nobody home? On the bed, laying awake as you prayed. 
Isakov calls the song's melody beautiful and says of his version, I hope we did it justice. Okay, next, we'll listen to the Lumineers cover Isakov's Caves. Frontman Wesley Schultz saw Isakov perform the song at Red Rocks and was, quote, totally crushed in the best of ways by it. As you'll hear, the Lumineers version is more tender and stripped down than Isakov's original. I used to love games Stumble out into that big sky Remember that bright hollow moon Showed our insides on our outside This town Closes down The same time Kinda, 20 Years of Dual Tone is out August 6th. We've been hearing a preview with Colorado label mates Gregory Allen Isakoff and the Lumineers covering each other's songs. And thanks to the team that always has us covered. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In the silence that follows, this town closes down the same.